power corrupts? Absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. You may have heard that quote before. Uh, that is an often recited quotation and assertion made by the British, 19th century British politician Lord Acton. What does he mean by it? He means basically this, that as an individual, typically, not always, but most often, as an individual's power and authority increases, their moral sense, sadly, tragically decreases. They lose their way. Absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. Now, in many ways, this is at the root of many people's struggle with Jesus. Think with me. Jesus comes as the king. He comes proclaiming that with him the, the, the kingdom has come and is coming again in full. And it would seem he is a king and absolutely so. Well, what if Lord Acton's quote is applicable to Jesus? What if in Jesus' case, absolute power was to corrupt absolutely? Well... In his case, it certainly does not corrupt in any way. In his case, absolute power loves and rules absolutely well. So as we sang a moment ago, he is worthy. If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me now to Matthew's gospel. We are pressing on in this series uh, through the gospel of Matthew. Uh, if you're trying to find that, that's the first book in the New Testament, the first of the four gospels that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We are in Matthew chapter 22, picking up where we left off last week. We are going to read verses 15 through 22. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. Hear now God's word. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true. And teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord Jesus, would you help us by the end of this time of looking at this text and Hearing ultimately, truly from you, would you help us to walk away marveling? Marveling for what we're learning of you, of who you are, of why you've come, and the significance of those realities. Would you help us, place us in the crowds, help us to see, help us to hear, perhaps even for the first time. This is some of the words here. The, the lesson that you draw there towards the end are certainly words that are oftentimes quoted and bantered around. Do we understand it? Do we grapple with it? Are we getting it? Oh, by your grace, through your spirit, 
speaking to ours, working through your word, the holy scriptures, infallible, authoritative, because inspired, breathed out, we ask that you'd help us here and leave this place changed. We pray in your name. Amen. It is oftentimes said, and it is certainly most often the case, that wealth equals influence. Wealth equals influence. So, of course, that would stand to reason, then, that great wealth would be roughly equated with great influence. Okay, fine. Who was the wealthiest person to live in the history of the world? Who was the wealthiest person ever to walk this earth? It was not Bill Gates. It is not uh, Jeff Bezos. It's not anybody actually who's living today. It's a guy by the name of Mansa Musa, a 14th century king of the Mali Empire. Mansa Musa, the Mali Empire, provided all the natural resources of the time to Europe, to Africa, and the Middle East. And under the reign of Mansa Musa, the strength of the Mali Empire simply grew and grew and grew. Now, very few in the world, because of course we weren't as connected in the 14th century as we are in the 21st, but very few in the world really knew who Mansa Musa was until, until the year 1324 when he took off on a trek for Mecca. And he didn't exactly pack lightly. He traveled with some historians say some 8,000 couriers, 12,000 slaves, 100 camels bearing a roughly about 300 pounds of gold. As he passed through the nation of Egypt, what we know as Egypt today, as he passed through Egypt, so much gold was put into play in the economy that it caused a currency crisis. Imagine that. A king who wrecks a nation's economy simply by passing through. That's a lot of influence. Wealth translating over into influence. Let's talk about someone else who's still wrecking nations and peoples wherever he goes. Just as historical, Jesus, who upends everyone and everything that he comes across. This is great influence that we're speaking of here. And that's where we come to our text here in Matthew chapter 22. This oftentimes referred to what we're landing in the middle of here as Holy Week, meaning that, that period of time, that stretch of days just before uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Well, on Sunday, we oftentimes refer to it as Palm Sunday, Jesus comes riding into his city. On Monday, he comes and cleanses his temple. And on Tuesday, the religious officials are a little, let's just say their britches are bunched up. And they begin to push back, all but asking this question, where do you get off? Who gives you the right? Who gave you the authority to say and do these things? To which Jesus answers by teaching, giving, relaying three parables. And over the last several weeks, we've been looking 
at those parables. Now, these men, these religious authorities, they were bent, they were twisted, they hated Jesus, but they weren't stupid. You may say they're foolish, and they were, but they were not stupid. They're very intelligent. They understood that they were at the, in the bullseye of these parables that Jesus is speaking. They understand that he is, is critiquing them. And so they realizing that they, they need to be rid of this troublemaker, this rabble-rouser, and, and knowing also that they certainly cannot come at him directly because he is so popular with the crowds, they know they have to come at him indirectly, around the side, if you will. And so they then send these emissaries, representatives of themselves and, and other parties within Judaism at the time, coming to him, trying to trip him up in a public setting. This text is the first of those rounds of attempts to trip him up publicly, and as you see, it fails miserably. How could it not? Jesus has revealed himself to us as the king. He has revealed himself to us as the king. It is clear from this passage and any other that you look at that we need to order our lives under his rule. He has revealed himself as the king. We must therein order our lives under his rule. And you see that coming out in three ways, the necessity, the imperative of our ordering our lives under his rule in these three ways. It's there in your, in your outline. First, you, we see it in the, in the opposition to this king. We see the necessity just right there, the necessity of our ordering our lives under his rule in the opposition to his rule. We see it also in the resolution of the king, that is to say his response, his response to that, that opposition. And then thirdly, we see it in his sovereignty, his rule, his majesty, his might, his wisdom and, and power. So let's look at these in turn. First, the opposition, then the resolution, and then the sovereignty. So first, the opposition to the king. Again, in that, we see the necessity of our ordering ourselves, our lives, under his rule. Look with me again at verses 15 through 17. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, and of course the him is there is Jesus, to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, let's think about the hatred and the hostility on wide, clear, obvious display here, the level, the intensity of the hostility. We're going to start with that. You might say it's, it's a quote that we banter around in our day, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You see the intensity and the level of the hostility simply in the rivals that are united coming together in common cause to try and bring Jesus down. The Pharisees, among many other things, were nationalists. They were patriots. They loved their country. The Herodians, in their own way, did too, but they were willing to do anything as far as compromising. They were supporting Herod and the Roman occupiers there in in the land at, at the time. So you see the animosity that they both have in common and the fact that they are willing to come together and work together if do whatever it takes to, to go across the aisle, if you will, to try and bring Jesus down. So you see the level of hostility in the fact that these intense, these bitter rivals are brought together in a common cause. Then you see it in the words that they speak, the flattery 
that they pour out here towards Jesus. One commentator I was reading this past week said, you, you, this, this, this is dripping with insincerity. Now, on the one hand, what they say is true, right? What they say is, is true and intensely true, but they mean it in a completely false way. And they're clearly trying to set him up, to butter him up, before they come at him with this dilemma, this question that they're putting before him. And the dilemma goes like this, because no, it, it seems as though no matter what he answers, no matter how he responds, he's stuck. Because if he comes out in support of this tax, this poll tax that the Romans were putting upon the people in Judea at the time, if he comes out in support of that, he's going to lose, take some serious uh, hits in his popularity among the people if he comes out in support of it. But if he comes out against it, well, then now he's laid himself open for charges of sedition and trying to start a rebellion. So it seems that no matter what he does, he's on the horns of that proverbial dilemma. Uh, Matthew tells us they're trying to entrap him, or another way to put that is to ensnare him. Well, what, why, though? I mean, what's, that's the level of hostility. You see that? Well, what's driving this? What's the reason for all this? Why, why all this effort? Why all this energy poured out towards uh, trying to entrap the only one who can bring you freedom? At least three reasons. One, they're embarrassed. I alluded to this earlier. They're embarrassed. They're horrified. They're mortified. They know that all the, the, the populace, the people around them, have, have heard what Jesus has said in those, those parables that we looked at over the last few weeks. They're embarrassed. They're also concerned as religious men, as authorities, people who take these things seriously. They're concerned. They view truly Jesus as a false teacher, as a heretic who is leading the people astray. So they are embarrassed, they are concerned, and they are threatened because his popularity is doing nothing but rising, and theirs is waning. So it's all this stuff going on. There's so much going on here in their opposition, so much more than we typically just think about on, on the first pass. It's sort of like walking into a Sherlock Holmes story. Like you, you come into a, 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 a crime scene. Now, most any of us, we walk into the crime scene in a Sherlock Holmes story, all we see is a bloody body on the ground. But Holmes walks in and within 10 seconds knows how this person died, who did it, and why. Because he can see so there's so much more going on here than we can. And that's what's going on with this opposition. There's so much going on here beneath the skin of, of the opposition. Let's think about it this way. It's, it's still true today. If this is still true today, there's so much more going on in the hearts and minds of those who would reject the Christian faith. The, the, the normal, the, the typical reasons and understandable reasons that many would say, I, I just cannot believe this. I, I, I simply cannot get past such things as the problem of evil. How could a good God allow such things to happen? Or the, ex, the nature of the truth claims of Christianity that seems so exclusive. Or the supposed tension, irresolvable, supposed irresolvable tension between faith and science. 
or the questions regarding the historical reliability of the scriptures themselves. Now, those are oftentimes the questions that people put forward out there, not just questions, but reasons for rejecting the faith. Now, I want to say two things to that. First, we need to take those questions very seriously. Very seriously. Not play them down, not for ourselves, and not for this person who's, who well could be earnestly, honestly struggling with those things. We need to take those questions seriously, and, and as we're engaging with such issues ourselves, help them to see, in fact, there are persuasive, reasonable answers to such concerns. That's the first thing. Here's the second. We also need to understand that very often there are reasons beneath the reasons. There are reasons beneath the reasons. Reasons like, I can't believe this because the people that I've known thus far in my life who identified themselves as Christians hurt me. You see? That's a reason beneath the reason. Here's another one. I just want to live how I want to live. I want to sleep with who I want to sleep with and do whatever the heck I want to do. That's a reason beneath the reason. There is oftentimes so much more going on with a person's struggle with the Christian faith than what they're immediately saying and what we are immediately thinking and seeing. Jesus is revealing himself to us as the king and we need to order our lives under his rule and also reckon with the realities of the opposition to his rule and have an understanding of its nature. That's the first thing. But that leads us into the second point, and that is, how does Jesus respond in this particular case? How does he respond to this opposition? And here we get into what I'll call the resolution of the king, his, his response, how he engages with this. So picking up where we left off in verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Well, in the face of such opposition... Jesus does not respond softly. He responds in a very stern fashion, to say the least. He knows the truth. He knows what they're trying to do and why they're trying to do it. So he knows the truth, and therein he speaks the truth. He calls the proverbial spade a spade. Now, just a quick time out. He does not do this for his own sake, for his own reputation for his own good name, to defend himself. Jesus never does that. He's doing this for the sake of the people listening, knowing that what these men have said and are trying to do cannot stand. And we need to keep that in mind as we respond, as we are criticized, as we are attacked. Why are we responding? What's driving our response? If we would speak sternly, why would we speak that way? Is it to defend ourselves? It's not the way Jesus did it. It's not the way Jesus did it. So he speaks the truth. And what does he say? He says, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. Literally, you play actors. 
You men who pretend to be something that you know yourselves not to be. That's what he, he says. A stern response that then sets us up, sets the, the conversation up for a, a demonstration of his great wisdom. His great wisdom here. And this is where the coin comes in and what he has to say about that. This denarius, which uh, was roughly the, a day's wages uh, in, in those times. Uh, what did you, if you were holding a denarius at the time, and this comes out actually in, in the, the discussion here, if you're holding one of those coins, what do you see? On one side, you could say heads. You see a, a, a profile of Tiberius Caesar, the ruler of the day, and an inscription that reads this way, the son of the divine Augustus. That's heads. Tails. You have an image of the Roman goddess of peace, and the inscription reads, Holy Priest or High Priest. You understand that for a, um, a Jewish person in that day, all of that, heads and tails, is utterly blasphemous. And it begs a question. So you see the thing, a, a, a good Jewish person at the time, the only reason they would have any of those coins on their person was to pay the tax. It begs the question, why do you have one of those in your purse? It just, it's, it kind of creates some nuance here to, to what's happening here in this conversation. Okay, so that's the coin. Here's the lesson that Jesus draws from the coin. He says, render. Render. And that's a word that is used to, in, the, in the context of paying a bill or settling a debt, or giving someone their due, okay? So render, render to Caesar, that is, give Caesar what he is due. You benefit, you hypocrites, you benefit from his roads and bridges. Pay him what he's due. Pay him the tax. Pay him what he's due. But what does God do? What does God do? Your life. Your whole self. Caesar is due this coin. What is God due? Yourself. Your whole life. Nothing more and, and nothing less. Give Caesar his tax, but don't give him your worship. And if Caesar, if Caesar so demands, and this became a real issue in the early centuries of the church, if Caesar so demands that which is due to God and God alone, you do not give it to him. You give to God what is due to him and to him alone. No wonder, no wonder the people walked away from Jesus amazed. They thought they had him, right? <laughs> they anything but had him. They, he blew up the horns of the dilemma. And there was nothing left but dust on the ground with this profound wisdom of his. We see parallels of, of, of this, what Jesus, the wisdom, the principles of what he's saying here in, in this, that, that um, our support still today as, as Christians, Ephesus, we'll put it this way, our support as Christians today of the state, of the civil authorities, is meant to be an expression of our obedience, our allegiance, our love of God. That's why we obey the, the, the civil authorities, the state, that we're to understand that. In a deep, principial way. That's why we give obedience and, and respect to the civil authorities the way we do. Out of an expression of obedience and love and loyalty to God. 
Now, that pattern is something that you see replicated in many other ways. As wives are to relate to their husbands, as children are to relate to their parents, as workers are to their employers, with this caveat that there is no abuse of power. That there is no abuse of power. That allegiance, that support in those situations is to be given out of love and loyalty to God. You see the same thing. Well, back to the civil authorities. This, my friends, is why we are called, Paul calls us in one of his letters to Timothy, and it's why we as, as elders in this church do this regularly, trying to leave us together at least monthly in this way, praying for our leaders. It doesn't matter what level local, state, or national, or judicial, or legislative, or executive, or what political party they're in. We are called to pray for them, to encourage them. This is why we obey them and the laws of this land. This is why that we would even be called to remind them as to who put them in the positions that they sit in. Who is it that ordained them to serve in that capacity to lead and to protect and give order to a society. Who put them there? Well, it's incumbent on us to, when we have to, remind them who put them there. Jesus is the king. That's the point. Jesus is the king. Our whole lives are to be ordered under his rule. Every bit of it, which takes us into the third point, the sovereignty of the king. And this is a big point here. This is not so much uh, obvious in the text, but it certainly can be easily extrapolated from this text, and it's worth noting uh, here. It's a term, it's a concept, it's a principle that's been referred to for, for years as sphere sovereignty. Sphere sovereignty. Let me explain what, it, what, how that, that, what that means. So the idea being this, that there are these distinct spheres that God has created things this way universally across cultures. Doesn't matter where and who you're thinking of, that, that society, human societies are meant to to function in this way, with these separate spheres, the home, the church, and the civil authorities, the government. Those spheres, they are distinct and they are different. And they're given certain areas of, of influence and authority in which they are to function, and they are not to transgress and cross the line into one another's spheres. So families here, Church is here, state is here. Granted, there can be some overlap, but not trespass, not trespass. Each one needs to mind their place, if you will. And that's the way a society is meant to function according to God's ordering of things. You following? That's a heavy idea in and of itself. That actually points us to, even, to some even deeper things. He's God. This is something that arises from his created order, the way he made things to be. The civil authorities does not get its power from itself, but from God. The family does not get its sphere simply because it says, I have a sphere, nor so with the church. All of this is under the sovereignty of the one true living God who has made things to function in this way. 
And, and those, those separate spheres would have nothing, have no power, no influence, no authority whatsoever were it not for him. Let, let, me, let me take you to a way that this works bad, has worked badly. So, so a negative example. Many of you may be familiar with this news story just a few weeks ago. So a judge in Great Britain ordered that a woman suffering from some mental disability who was in her second trimester of pregnancy be forced to have an abortion. Okay? She, the judge was on record as saying, quote, she realized that this was an immense intrusion, but this was in her best interest, the mother, who, by the way, absolutely positively was on record as saying, I don't want this. And her mother, the mother of the mother, who was formerly a midwife, who said, I will help my daughter raise this child, also said, don't do this, despite that the state said, we're going to do this. Now, thankfully, the British Court of Appeals shouted a, a voice of sanity in all this, and that arrogant judge's ruling was overturned. But what's happening in that? Among other things, what you have is one sphere trespassing into the sphere of another. The state crossing the line into where the family is meant to be. You see? That's when it doesn't work well. And it's a very obvious, an, an example sort of like that. The point being, just coming right back to all this, Jesus is king. He is the sovereign one. He is the Lord of all of, of life. What do we do with this? Just come tomorrow morning. Well, for one thing, it helps us know how to read the news. Right? It gives you a sphere sovereignty spectacles to go through life and understand how things are meant to be. That's, that's one. But let me go just a little further, kind of in the more mundane, if I can put it that way. If, in fact, he is king of king and lord of lords, if, in fact, he is sovereign over all spheres, then that has to mean that we as his followers, as his disciples, need to reckon with that in every single decision that we make. That he is king not just over the great things but the little things. And we don't get to pick and choose where he's king and where he's not, okay? You with me so far? You're nodding your head. Okay. You may not be in a minute. What this means is, no, you don't rob the bank. But you also don't pirate software. It means, no, you don't, we don't murder but we also don't speak harshly of other people. It means, yes, we give when we see a need there in front of us, but it also has to mean we're called to give with great regularity and with a sacrificial heart. It means that we don't have affairs and we don't do porn on the internet. And when we fall and fail in any of those areas, which we do, we go to Jesus. We repent. We ask for his forgiveness. And we get the help we need. In whatever that is. In whatever that arena is. Because he's the king. He is the king. And he is lord of all of life. The great the small, the big, the societal, 
in the everyday Monday morning. Jesus has revealed himself to us as the king. We are, we, ours is to order our lives under his rule. Let me end with this, just this analogy, this image. It's not, not, not original to me in any way. Uh, imagine we are all ships sailing in formation across some body of water, okay? And we're trying to get to some destination out there on the horizon. What will guarantee the success of such a voyage of all these little ships out there trying to make it across? Well, we don't want to be crashing into one another, do we? I mean, that'll render a hull somewhat unseaworthy. You also have to have intact uh, steering mechanisms, whatever kind of vessel that you're speaking of, so that we don't drift up over and to, and to hit one another and collide with one another. Because you know, if you, we collide, we're going to sink. And if the steering mechanisms, again, whatever sort of ship we're thinking of, are fouled, we are going to collide. Now, why am I mentioning this? What, why has that, how does that analogy help us at all? Because when we submit ourselves to Jesus' lordship, one of the things that he does is he makes us more seaworthy. He begins to put the hull back together. He begins to restore the steering mechanisms. And in fact, he gives us the charts by which to sail and to bring us back home. To bring us home. Now, why am I bringing that up? Because we are being told all the time, we are saturated, bombarded with this kind of messaging, a messaging that is completely different than what I just said, that if you want flourishing in your life, you need autonomy, that if, if you want fulfillment in your life, you need self-reliance, self-dependence. You need to be the captain of your ship and the master of your fate. Invictus. Go look it up. Let me ask you a question. Look around you. Look within you. How well does that approach to life work? Really? Jesus has revealed himself as the king. Ours is to order our lives under his rule, and it is a good rule. Yeah. Let's pray.